Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Happy New Year, and thank you for listening. At the 1976 Democratic Convention, when Jimmy Carter accepted the nomination for president, he quoted Bob Dylan saying, We have an America that, in Bob Dylan's phrase, is busy being born, not busy dying. During his time in the Oval Office and dating back to his years as governor of Georgia, Jimmy Carter welcomed performing musicians and rocked along in many concerts. Yesterday, was the television premiere of Jimmy Carter, Rock and Roll President. And today, the film will be available on CNN Go platforms and CNN mobile apps. The documentary looks at the unlikely connections and friendships Carter had with several musicians from the Allman Brothers Band to Willie Nelson to Bono and even Dylan himself. Jimmy Carter has dedicated most of his life to humanity, finding commonality among all people. So in a new documentary, when he says that music breaks down barriers, we further understand the importance of music in his life. The documentary is Jimmy Carter, Rock and Roll President. Director Mary Wharton and producer Chris Farrell are with us via Zoom now. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you for having us. This documentary is pure joy. It is as entertaining as it is informative. And I was wondering when you decided to make the film. I had been working on a, a couple of ideas, one of which was a, a Steel Pulse documentary. Mary and I, who have been friends for you know 20 years, had been talking about working on projects together. And then I came along a, uh, an Allman Brothers idea uh, and myself and a, and a few guys were working on that. And as part of that research, uh, I was speaking to a financier in Atlanta and he said, you know, you really should come down here and talk to these gentlemen that were in the, that served in the Carter White House because they know a ton about Greg Allman and the Allman brothers and the Allman brothers put, put, put Jimmy Carter in the White House. So I was, I was fairly intrigued. So I went down to see Peter Conlon and Tom Beard who had worked in the White House and they told me these fantastic stories about about the Allman Brothers and, and that relationship and just how close Greg Allman and, and President Carter were. And so I get up to leave. I was you know, very gracious and you know thankful for their time. And they said, well, but do you want to hear about Bob Dylan and Jimmy Carter? <laughs> and I said, um, well, that's not what I'm here for, but that sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, sure. Tell me about it. And they just regaled me with like these stories that I was, you know, dumbfounded. I just, again, I, I, like to think that I know a fair amount about music, but I had just never heard those stories. And once again, I decided, okay, I've overstayed my welcome. I'll, I'll leave now and thank you very much. And 
they said, well, what about Willie Nelson and, and Jimmy Carter? And I was just, by this time I was like, you gotta be kidding me. So <laughs> I had gone down with the, with the very clear intention of, of, of working on the Allman Brothers, but through their stories, um, I decided, you know, this is, this is the genesis of something that I really want to do and I want to explore and I want to develop. And I, I called Mary, you know, I, and to be honest with you, there's all these revisionist history. I can't remember if I called her like the second I got out of the meeting you know, on the way to the hotel, in the hotel. But, but, you know, she was, she was definitely my first call because again, you know, the respect that I have for her and in, in, in our friendship and wanting to do something. And I thought that this was something that we, you know, we've been away from the South for a long time, but as Southerners, you know, there's a sensibility that the, the musical angle, but there's also a broader story that we wanted to tell as well. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Chris and I, you know, like he said, we've been talking and trying to trying to find the right idea of something to, to work on together. And when he called me, he he said, I ha I I found something that I think you're gonna want to be a part of, and I was like, oh great, tell me all about it. And he was like, I can't tell you about it right now. I'm on a cell phone. I'm in Atlanta. Um, I don't know who's gonna be listening. And I was just like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, what is this? You know, I'm used to working on things about you know you know, big rock stars where there's a lot of secrecy around it. They don't want the fans to find out until it's ready to be announced and all that kind of stuff. So, so I, I understand the need for discretion, but I was like, he was like, I'll call you when I get to a landline when I'm back in New York. And I just thought this was crazy. And I, I remember saying to my husband, Chris has this idea and he won't tell me about it. And it's driving me nuts. Like I'm so... I, I, I'm like, you know, I could tell by his excitement about it that it was something really good. And, um, and you know, he was, it was such sort of early days in, in you know, it was just kind of like running around in his brain and he, he you know, didn't know exactly how he was going to put this project together or, or, you know, pull it off or find the money or any of those things. Like those are all big, you know, hard challenges. And, um, but he was just so excited about it. And so I knew that it was something good. And as soon as he finally got to New York and, and he wouldn't ever tell, I asked him a couple of other times and he wouldn't tell me about it. Cause he would be like, no, I'm on a cell phone. I can't, I can't talk about it. And it was just the the suspense was killing me. <laughs> and, oh my God! What year was that? It was the end of 2017. Yeah, it was almost three years ago now. Yeah. And then, and then, so by the way, in fairness to me, partly because of my, you know, my my real profession or my historical profession is is mergers and acquisitions, and so that's you know shrouded in secrecy, and you have to be confidential. But but I really did believe that we had stumbled onto something and and by the way that it was the tip of the iceberg and we can you know we can come on to that but um i just i just thought you know my god someone's gonna scoop this or someone you know if if, if we start telling people then you know someone's gonna get to them or vanity fair is gonna write an article so um it did seem a little cloak and dagger it probably did seem a little ridiculous at, at, at the outset but you know in hindsight there were a lot of people who later on um, said, you know what, it's really good that you guys kept that under wraps. And, and I think that, you know, I think that that really does, you know, you, both of you, both of the way you responded, you know, it's, it is a surprise. So, you know, over the last two and a half years when we were doing this, there weren't a whole bunch of articles that appeared that sort of let you know this was coming. And we're hoping that it, it, it will continue to be a big surprise and a, you know, a fun surprise for the, uh, for the audience. It is that and more. Before we go into President Carter's connection with Bob Dylan, the deep connection he felt and continues to feel with his music, I want to ask, how did you get Dylan to appear on camera? I mean, he wouldn't go pick up his Nobel Prize in person. <laughs> yeah. Who's responsible for that? Well, I have to give full credit where it's due to our writer, Bill Flanagan. And when Chris first came to me 
with this project and we started talking about, well, how are we going to get this done? And we knew that we were going to need to get Dylan and he has not done any interviews uh, over the past 30 years, except for, you know, for his films about himself. Other than he, he did give a, a few uh, a few nice quotes for my Joan Baez film about a decade ago, but um, but he he doesn't he doesn't do a lot of these kinds of on camera interviews, uh, and like you said, he doesn't he doesn't he didn't even show up to accept his Nobel Prize. So Bill Flanagan is a very respected music writer and is quite friendly with uh dylan has done a number of interviews with him and um has a great relationship with his manager jeff rosen and i knew that he was the one person that i knew that that would get us a shot at getting an interview with dylan and and he all throughout was you know never made any promises and then said i don't know but you know i'll try and and he also, through all of his, you know, friendships and connections with a, a number of amazing musicians, he brought Roseanne Cash to the film. He brought Paul Simon and Jimmy Buffett and Bono. And, um, you know, those are all really major artists that bring a lot to it. And, and one of the things that Chris and I are really proud of is the really eclectic nature of the cast. Um, and and you know there's a lot of a lot of star power but also a lot of really you know interesting and smart people from all different kinds of backgrounds you know when do you see bob dylan and madeline albright in the same film um, <laughs> uh, along with the head of the episcopalian church bishop michael curry i mean you know so so yeah dylan was definitely quite a catch but uh, it was it was uh, it was really. But it does go. It does speak to you know that that affinity. I mean, he you know Mary has has said previously you know he was sort of the the, the white whale, and I think that's that's a perfect characterization. But the fact that we you know that he and you know, obviously Bill, again Herculean efforts to to get it done, but but the fact that he and Jeff Rosen, his manager, was very very good to us and and very. Um, accommodating as well it, again it just goes to it speaks to the affinity that these you know these musicians and these people i mean everybody wanted to be helpful nobody during this process was difficult at all and you know and dylan, and dylan who could who could have been and who's been you know very difficult to get a hold of for other people you know he was the logistics were challenging to be sure but he was he was fantastic yeah i mean you're right it's an absolute testament to his admiration of Jimmy Carter. The film opens with a clip of Carter's speech at the 1976 Democratic National Convention in which he quotes Bob Dylan. Would you discuss the deep connection Jimmy Carter has with Dylan's music? I think it's really rich and and it's something that, you know, Carter talked about way back in, I want to say it was, you know, 74 or something like that. Uh, when he was governor of Georgia, he, he started, you know, talking about Bob Dylan and it was, it was Carter's son, Chip, who's in the film, who introduced him to the music of Bob Dylan. You know, Jimmy Carter is not a, a baby boomer. He wasn't of the generation that would have, you know, naturally gravitated towards Dylan's music. But his son, who was a teenager at the time, introduced him to this music and he started listening to it. And he has said uh, many times that it even as a as a farmer's son and growing up on a peanut farm that it wasn't until he heard bob dylan's song maggie's farm that he truly understood the plight of the farm workers and and it it 
opened his eyes, I think, in a lot of ways. And, and Carter, as, as we all know, is a great humanist. And he has always opened his heart to humanity and to, to you know, other people's plight. And in the film, Madeleine Albright credits that about him as to one of the things that allowed him to be able to make peace between warring countries like he achieved with the Middle East Peace Accord, you know, and that he, he was able to understand other people and understand what they needed. But, but going back to his affinity for Dylan's music, he, he, you know, Jimmy Carter is also a poet, which is something that not a lot of people know about him, but he's published several volumes of poetry. And, and I think that he appreciates the poetry of Dylan's lyrics. And, um, you know, that was something that impressed Dylan when he first met him, as, you know, as he says in the film. And I think that, when you think about that time period where Dylan was part of the counterculture and Carter as the governor of Georgia later to become president was a member of the establishment. And, and that was kind of mind boggling to Dylan that this person that he saw as, you know, part of the establishment world understood his lyrics and appreciated his music in a very deep, and philosophical way. And, you know, they had these like, you know, deep philosophical conversations about Christianity and about Carter's belief in God and what that meant to him. And that's not the kind of conversations that politicians and pop stars typically have. I think one of my I think one of my favorite lines in, in the whole movie is, or, or the one that just made me chuckle because I, I completely relate to it, is when Willie Nelson says, "You know, he could imagine that that Bob Dylan and, and Jimmy Carter had some really interesting, dynamic conversations because they really come from such different places." Um, and then he you know, juxtaposes that with you know him and him and President Carter, you know, really coming from the same place. I mean, I, I will say this, you know, there are a number of themes that we tried to capture, you know, hope, the power of music, you know, the goodness of this, this man, you know, so we, we tried to make some social commentary. But, you know, one of the things that we were really trying to, to capture as well is to try to understand why, you know, and Dylan is the example that you just gave, but why these musicians, you know, it's not uncommon for us to be fans of musicians or, you know, have, you know, for, for them to have our adulation. But it's pretty rare for musicians to return that adulation, you know, to other, to other people and particularly politicians. And they all, and they really all do care about him and, and, and hold him in high regard. And you know, through discovery, it's, it's just obvious that, you know, one is because he's such a genuine person he's so real um and i think that that's what drew that you know that's what that connection is and also he just he's a real fan i mean he truly truly you know some people and i'm not you know i'm not naming names or you know some people will take on theme songs during their campaigns all of a sudden they're the biggest bruce springsteen fan or you know fill in the blank but but jimmy carter you know this was a lifelong you know love of music he's a very an astute listener of music this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with director Mary Wharton and producer Chris Farrell about their recent documentary, Jimmy Carter, Rock and Roll President. Something that struck me in the film as I was chuckling also, um, particularly when Bob Dylan recalls meeting Jimmy Carter for the first time when he was governor and saying, I realized my songs had reached into the establishment world. I had no experience in that realm and it made me a little uneasy. I, it brought me full circle because we're in a time now, particularly in 
this part of the country where Confederate monuments are coming down and Mississippi has gotten rid of the Confederate flag. And I think the attraction between Dylan and Carter isn't as far-fetched because we realized that Jimmy Carter had zero tolerance for racial discrimination. So he wasn't that establishment. And I think that's part of what's refreshing in the film. Of course he would relate to the, the poet, the bard, the dreamer, um, who just wants everyone to love each other. I, that, that part is fantastic. And when you talk about how other presidents have adopted theme songs or we know about the entertainers they've brought to the White House, it really wasn't until Barack Obama took office that we saw the range of artists that were invited to perform at the White House. And when you turn to the jazz musicians who are featured and the discussions about jazz diplomacy, that was so important to, to bring out as well. Bill, Bill Clinton played his saxophone but it was about him playing the saxophone. With Jimmy Carter, this music was a part of his life and important to him before he was famous and regardless of the fact that he was famous while he continued with it. Is, is that fair to say? They, they, I mean, many, many, many people throughout the film, you know, highlight that people from his past, whether that's Chip or you know, AIDS, um, you know, he himself re recounts the stories of, of being a childhood. You know, Andrew Young, you know, famously says in the film that, you know, Carter would be able to go into black churches and without picking up, you know, the, the songbook, you know, be able to sing, you know, every single song. I mean, you, you know, that's not something you can just pull off as a politician. I mean, you, you have to be deeply rooted in, that, in those things. The other thing that was powerful about the jazz piece, you know, in addition to all those incredible, incredible jazz musicians, I think that the fact that a president of the United States, I mean, think about the times that we're living in right now, was able to stand up on the White House lawn and call out the country for racism, you know, and, and to say, you know, this, that has been a part of our history and we need to be better than that. Um, you know, I just think that that was, was incredibly, incredibly brave and incredibly powerful. When I first came to Atlanta in the late 1970s and I began working at WABE, our format was then classical and NPR news. We are now all news and talk. But back then, President Carter was in office and at the radio station, he had provided to us through his secretary his favorite classical LPs. So when we would play a recording, if it was Horowitz or Rostropovich, we would say, and this is from the White House collection. And then about 20 years later, I got to interview Jimmy Carter about his first volume of poetry. And I mentioned that and how special it was for me and for us. And he just started talking about the cassette tape. This was when there were still eight inch cassette tapes. He said he had boxes and boxes of them that he made for his secretary and his scheduler to have playing in the waiting room, just in the anteroom before people came in to talk to him because he thought that the classics would be soothing and, and this was 
something that he he wanted to create a mood before people came in and I was just blown away by that that's amazing because it just it just shows like what a master diplomat he was to understand but also to understand more than anyone I've ever come into contact with about the real power of music and that comes from feeling the power of music himself directly. He understands it very intuitively. And I think it just, it, it, it's one of the, the joys for me of this project was that, you know, like Chris said, we started off by just knowing, okay, he's friends with Bob Dylan and Willie Nelson and Greg Allman. That's totally cool. That in and of itself would have been amazing and, and, and enough to make a film about. But then we started digging into it. And it was so much more than that and so much deeper than that. And when we started looking at all these films that are in the you know, Carter Presidential Library now that were shot at the White House of, you know, and, and like the, the Willie Nelson performance when um, Carter's at Camp David negotiating those um, peace agreements and, and Rosalind, you know, flew back from Camp David for the, for the afternoon to, to be there for, for the concert and then had the helicopter back up to Camp David. And that was one of the things that was such a sort of revelation to me was that we set out to make a real music documentary about President Jimmy Carter, which is a weird thing in and of itself. And, and I wasn't entirely sure that we were going to be able to achieve that at the outset. But we set this very high bar for ourselves that, you know, obviously we wanted to cover some of the main high points of Carter's career, but we said, if there's not a musical connection to it, then we're not going to talk about it. Like I would have loved to have talked about him putting solar panels on the White House and cutting U.S.'s oil consumption in half during his administration and all the things that he did towards the environmental problem that he foresaw and, and tried to put us on the right path. But, you know, we couldn't find a musical connection to that. So we didn't cover it. We allude to it. There's a shot of, of the solar panel, excuse me. But, but we didn't cover that. But when we were able to find these musical connections to, say, the Camp David Peace Accords and to the Iranian hostage crisis, I was so relieved because, you know, we're not trying to be the definitive film about Carter's life or even about Carter's presidency or about his accomplishments. And we're not political historians. You know, when you talk about the Camp David Accords or the, or the Iranian hostage crisis, there are, you could make a whole film about either one of those things and not cover it all. It's very complicated and complex. But what we tried to do is look at it through a different lens. And, and like the story that he told us about listening to Willie Nelson's gospel music when he was going through the most difficult challenge of his life, which was the Iranian hostage crisis, and, and using that music as a way to get through this difficult time, it was so such a revelation to me because... Every news network has a Carter biography like sitting in the in the can waiting for him to die. And they'll, you know, they'll just insert the time and cause of his death and then it'll go on the air the next day. Um, and they'll all talk about the Camp David Peace Accord and they'll talk about the Iran and hostage crisis. But nobody knows that little detail of how he truly was able to get through this difficult time was once again through the power of music, but now they will. And I think also following up on what Mary said, I mean, we really, and we had to be disciplined because there were, it was funny, we, I told you the, the, the genesis of the project and, you know, there were these, these couple of handful of stories and, and certain people wanted us to actually, you know, tell the story of the presidency, you know, 
make it clear to people that he was in fact a great president. And we, you know, we, Mary and I were just very clear with each other. No, we're going to do it through this lens and that lens will still be able to get across what we're trying to get across. You know, it's a surprising story. We wanted to make us a story that was surprising and entertaining. Check. I think, I think we did that. But we also wanted, we really, really wanted to show that in this very sort of, you know, he says divisive, I would almost use the word desperate time that we're in or times that we're in, that, you know, music historically could, could bring hope in very, very difficult times. And, and, we're, and we and he are hopeful that that can happen again. And there's another, another theme that, you know, we should expect more of each other. We should expect more of our leaders. You know, he is certainly an example of someone who's an incredible individual. Um, and he had the highest, you know, held the highest office in the land. So, you know, we can find people like that for those offices. And, and we ourselves need to, to hold ourselves to higher account to, uh, you know, to do that, to, to find those type of people. Well, that comes out in the footage and the narrative you give to his inaugural gala. Would you talk about that, some of the musicians in attendance? Oh, it's, I mean, there, there were so many that we didn't, that we couldn't even, you know, we, we couldn't spend, the, you know, too much time in that one moment. But, you know, there were lots of, lots of people at that concert. Linda Ronstadt performed. Um, uh, I actually forget all the people that, that were there that night, but we, we chose two clips because of President Carter saying that, that two of his favorite performers were Aretha Franklin and Paul Simon, and they were the, the top of his list of, of the artists that he wished would be part of his concert, and, and naturally they both did. And that Aretha performance... <gasps> It, oh my God! It's it's a revelation, right? <laughs> well, it 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 is so exquisite. I mean, I've been a fan of her since I was a teenager, and uh, to hear her, her voice so pure, a cappella, in that God bless America, it's luminous. I mean, I I was so grateful to witness that in the film. God bless America Land that I love Stand beside her and the light from above, from the mountains to the prairies, to the ocean, with And then, of course, the shots of the audience are pretty dazzling, too. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of people there. John Lennon and Yoko Ono, um, Muhammad Ali, Red Fox. I did a comedy act as part of the show. John Wayne, Paul Newman. <laughs> One thing to go back to just in terms of the performances, because Aretha's was, I mean, as you said, I mean, it's just ethereal. It was so amazing. But... I mean, I love Paul Simon and I, and I love that song, but that, that listening to that rendition, you know, listening to that performance, I still get chills because again, it to me and, and that song and, and sort of the passion of that song and sort of, you know, I'm weary and I'm just sort of, you know, that could be today, mm -hmm. <laughs> 2020 that he could be singing that. And it was just a very, very, very powerful performance, I, I thought. Mary, when you were talking about how profoundly you were moved learning that during the Iranian hostage crisis, Jimmy Carter found solace listening to Willie Nelson's gospel. I think that story that 
Jimmy Carter tells early in the film about Willie Nelson smoking dope in the White House <laughs> was was worth the price of admission itself. <laughs> yes, I, I agree. I love the sort of mischievous grin that he gives while he's delivering it because you know, he appreciates how funny it is for him to say, yeah, Willie was smoking pot when he spent the night with me at the White House. And and then I also loved, you know, the, the story that Willie tells later in the film about that the first time he went to the White House to, to meet Jimmy Carter, uh, he had he had he was on crutches. And I asked him about that because I had seen the pictures and he was like, well, yeah, I had, you know, I had, I had just gotten busted down in Jamaica. And he doesn't say <laughs> what he was busted for, but I think you can do the math. You know, it's Willie Nelson. And, uh, you know, and then he shows up at the White House, you know, wearing a torn old T-shirt and with long hair and fresh out of a Jamaican prison. And Jimmy Carter's like, come on in, <laughs> sit down and talk a spell. So Southern, right? <laughs> Director Mary Wharton and producer Chris Farrell speaking about the new documentary, Jimmy Carter, Rock and Roll President. It will be available on CNN Go platforms and CNN mobile apps starting today. We'll hear more about the film after a short break. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We're back with director Mary Wharton and producer Chris Farrell. Today, Jimmy Carter, rock and roll president, will be available on CNN Go platforms and CNN mobile apps. The film conveys a great deal about Carter's connection to the Allman Brothers. How did the band help put Jimmy Carter in the White House? Well, the, uh, I mean, as, as the film shows, Phil Walden, who was the manager for the Allman Brothers, had gone to them and said, you know, this is a guy that you know, I respect and, you know, think is a good guy. And, you know, he's, he's quote, one of us. And, I think we should get behind him and um you know to listen to chuck lavelle and others tell the story you know they they it didn't take a lot of convincing i mean they really did admire and respect carter and, and, it, and there was a mutual respect you know uh amongst them so they agreed to you know lend their sort of voice if you will um and sort of endorsement which was great as john winter talks about you know young people you know the biggest rock band in the in the country was endorsing Jimmy Carter. And so that was, you know, that, that meant a lot, but, but more specifically, they were willing to do these concerts. And at that time, the way that the uh, campaign finance laws work, you could get the, uh, you know, if the Allman Brothers played a concert and had a gate of, I'm just making it up, but $10,000 and they gave that gate or those, uh, you know, that money to the campaign, then the federal government would match. And Carter was way, way, way outspent. He had, you know, no money, not, not only relative to the Republican machine, but even, even the, you know, in the Democratic Party. So the Allman Brothers, again, gave him credibility, but they also gave him cash, which was, you know, which was huge. Frank Moore in the film talks about the fact that 
one of the great things about these concert fundraisers is as opposed to, you know, other forms of fundraising, when you put on a concert, the promoters pay you cash that night. You know, that that's just the way the music business operates. You don't leave the venue until you have your payment because you've played your show and that's how it works. So the campaign was like, this was amazing. We would get these big bags of cash and, and we would be able to turn in all the receipts so that we could get the federal matching funds, but we could use that money to buy television ads in Pennsylvania the next day, you know? And it was like, it was literally funding the campaign as it went along. Um, and that was crucial uh, to, you know, getting the word out because Carter was a, was a relatively unknown entity outside the South. But his friendship with Greg Allman, it endured. He was not fickle when Allman was going through the worst of his drug problems. This is remarkable. Absolutely. And it goes back to what Chris was saying about the sort of affinity that these musicians had for Carter. And it speaks to, you know, why they were all so willing to come on board and help us out with this movie because they saw that we were had had good intentions with it. But Carter is a true friend, you know, someone that you can count on to be there for you. And that, you know, I'm sure that famous musicians have people fawning all over them all the time and, and have lots of people who want to be their friends, but they don't know who to trust. And Jimmy Carter is somebody that you can trust. And that's very rare in any person, let alone a politician. <laughs> Mary, Mary, and I you know, have told this story several times before. I mean, we, I would say that we agreed on 90% of everything in the film, you know, as a team. And then there would be times when Mary like felt strongly about something. It's like, okay, Mary, you know, you're right that you, you feel strongly. That, that was a story that I felt very strongly about. And Mary was you know, very gracious and, and in keeping that, you know, allowing us to keep that in because I, to me, it's, it's seminal in terms of it really just is who he is and whether you put a label on it that, you know, that's his Christian you know, value, whether that's, you know, he's a humanist, whether it's just that he's a good individual I really do think that that story and the arc of that story you know, sums it all up in terms of who he is as an individual. And Mary rightly pointed out the other day in another interview, you know, not only does he go through all that and risk his political career, but then he wins. And the first guy he has at the White House for dinner is Greg Ullman. I mean, you know, that's just, it's just incredible. The interviews you have with famous musicians, the testimonials. There's a wonderful intimacy you achieve. I felt like Roseanne Cash was my friend during that movie. I want her over for dinner tomorrow. Totally. <laughs> um, but how, how did you amass all of that fantastic footage of Jimmy Carter hanging out with the popular musicians during the 70s and 80s. I like to look at it like I'm Nancy Drew. You know, I, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a private detective. And uh, I was really into like hard-boiled uh, noir private detective novels. Um, but uh, it, it's it's a it's a sort of a treasure hunt where you just dig around in libraries and archives. And a lot of times materials from that era are not necessarily labeled properly. Um, and so you just have to um, just go look at stuff. And, and, and it's, it's interesting, you know, this is the first time that I've, done a film about somebody of of president carter's kind of stature where literally everything he did in the four years of his presidency was fully documented by photographs or footage um 
and and it would be documented by multiple different people. So, you know, there's the White House photographers and there's the the Naval Photographic Collection that has all these um, films and there's all of the three different news archives. And so it was a mountain of material that we had to sort through and that we, we wound up with um, a spreadsheet that is, I want to say, 100 pages long. It might only be 62. But, you know, it, it, it is a massive document that we use to keep track of all the material that we have. And we couldn't even afford to get everything that was out there. If I was, you know, I've made a film about, say, Jimi Hendrix in the past, and it was just sort of like, I need to see every single piece of footage that exists from his entire life. And, and I was able to do that because there was only so much that was shot. With President Carter, it was so much that you had to, like, just go on, like, little clues. Like, we knew that the Jimmy Buffett... Um, concert that he gave to help support Carter at a crucial moment in his career, in his uh, campaign, sorry, was in Portland, Oregon. And we didn't know the exact date, but we could kind of trace like when were the primaries in those, you know, in these particular places and be like, okay, so the Oregon primary was in, let's call it May. And like, let's look for anything of any film footage that would be of Carter rallies from that time period. And we finally found this one reference to some film that said Jimmy Carter with folk singer. And we didn't know what it was and, and there was no way to look at it, but we took a chance and we paid the money to have the film transferred so that we could see it. And lo and behold, it was Jimmy Buffett. And, and it was like a miracle, you know? <laughs> and sometimes that didn't work out, but we had, you know, enough of those things that we took a chance on that were great. And even just like little things like the, we have a shot in the film of Diana Ross presenting a giant birthday cake to President Carter. And it's just a little, like, kind of amazingly cute thing. <laughs> um, but, you know, when I saw the description of this film and it said, you know, President Carter's birthday, Diana Ross performing, I was like, I, I don't care. I'm paying the money. I need to see that. And there there's a she she actually does sing happy birthday mr president to him in a way that's amazing and she she goes into like a disco performance of her song love hangover where she changes the lyrics to make them be about jimmy carter and it's this total surreal and amazing diana ross performance that i I, one of my, you know, I still rue the fact that I was not able to find a way to, to work that into the narrative of our story, um, because it's amazing. There was an embarrassment of riches. I mean, there are a lot of things we, you were talking about Horowitz earlier. I mean, there are a lot of, lot of great things that were unearthed that, um, you know, that just didn't make it. And also, by the way, I mean, the, the team, like the, archi the archival team that we had was, was incredible as well. Well, President Carter himself has given the documentary the highest praise. What is it like for you to hear those comments? What was it like when you first heard them? Well, it was quite a journey. I had promised him at the very beginning of all this that, you know, I was going to show him the film, um, you know, before he passed away. And, I, you know, it was almost this race race against the clock. Luckily, he's so strong. I mean, he'll probably live another five or 10 years. But um, and and there were times when it, we thought, well, we're not going to be able to do it. And, you know, there are a lot of people involved, as you can imagine, a lot of handlers, etc. And it became almost this sort of, um, you know, very stealth, very clandestine operation that Mary and I flew to planes and um, and showed it to him and the First Lady and, and Amy and Chip and, and Jeff. And uh, it, it was just, it truly was one of the most special days of my entire life. One, to, you know, to, to be able to fulfill that promise and that commitment, 
but to see his reaction, he, I, I was sitting next to Mary. He was sitting next to Mary. Mary's in between the two of us. And he kept whispering and, you know, he cried during oh. the film. And he invite, he was in such a good mood afterwards. He invited us to lunch and we spent, you know, a couple of hours at lunch with him. And then it came back to us via Amy that, uh, you know, I think he's, he's even said in, one, in several of the quotes that, he, that you've seen, you know, he would not have changed a thing. Well, I have to congratulate you both again because we've lived through such culture wars and it's so uplifting to see stereotypes bashed and people of every type and music of every kind uplifted in your film. Thank you so very much and congratulations once more. Thank you, Lois. It's it's really nice to hear that, you know, you and and people that are starting to see it now are are having the similar kinds of reactions that you did of just feeling uplifted and and that's 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 all all along been our hope because this movie and and meeting president carter has been one of the most inspiring experiences of my life and um and i hope that other people that see it get inspired and um and can share in the joy and revel in the power of music because i believe wholeheartedly that um music can save us all director Mary Horton and producer Chris Farrell speaking about their recent documentary, Jimmy Carter, Rock and Roll President. The film will be available on demand beginning today via cable satellite systems, CNN Go platforms, and CNN mobile apps. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily celebration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear from author Kathleen Schein. Her book, The Grammarians, just came out in paperback. The story is about twin sisters, their love for language, and discovering their independent selves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Happy New Year. And thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.